the sound of a dozen hellhounds slavering for a taste of sweet gringo flesh. This is actually part of my perennial Mexico soundtrack. Whenever the omnipresent guard dogs catch that scent of mayonnaise or sulfur or whatever the hell Caucasian men smell like when they're wandering around looking for an address they cannot find. This particular bit of the Baskervilles was on the Otay Mesa, a plateau that spans the border from Tijuana to San Diego. There's an absurdly wide view looking down across the sprawl of Tijuana from up here. And people like the neighborhood because there's a border crossing so close you can just ride your bike into the States with ease. Or at least you could before 9-11 and the drug wars and the border nonsense and now COVID. This is the neighborhood where I met journalist Jorge Nieto, a man with a literal and figuratively expansive view of this city. After I found the right address, we sat down, this is pre-COVID, and drank mightily from his bottle of mezcal. We talked about the good old days of TJ and the bad, about losing friends to violence, and about what happens when you accidentally get the wrong beer for members of the Sinaloa cartel. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. All right, well, we have, uh, we have a drink. Yeah, we have a, a nice drink here, uh, mezcal. A, a nice, here. simple mezcal. Yeah, nice, simple, white mezcal from Oaxaca. Cheers. Cheers. Salute. So, did you do a lot of traveling when you were growing up here? Did you go see other parts of Baja, other parts of Mexico? Or? Yeah, well, mainly Baja. I'm originally from Guanajuato. I was born in Celaya, Guanajuato. I arrived to Tijuana when I was four Four years old with my parents, I decided to came out. Got it, okay. I spent my life, my teenage years in Ensenada, you know, discovering the the life, the friends, the girlfriends, the alcohol, the drugs, the party, etc., etc. And I started to work as a waiter as well in a restaurant. I don't know if you know Papa's and Beer. Papas and beer. Yeah, it's, it's like a, yeah, yeah. It's kind of an institution, right? A kind of institution. Yeah, one of the famous, more yeah. famous nightclubs in Ensenada. So yeah. they, they, I was under eighteen. They opened a restaurant, and I started to work in the restaurant. But that restaurant received a lot of tour of tourists from the cruise ships Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Okay. So for me, work on that day, on that time, that days and early in the morning was the best because I get a lot of tips from the tourists, and uh, the tourists used to, came out from the cruise ship to the local store, the local bar, the local restaurant to get drunk. <laughs> at nine in the morning. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, amazing. at nine in the morning, and I, and I was there. <laughs> you, <laughs> the best part, and I was there, you know, like a dancing with, <laughs> with them and doing this crazy stuff, so. Uh, yeah, no, that's a familiar, that is a familiar hustle to me. I grew up in a cruise ship town. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And they're only there for like 
90 minutes and then the then the big horn blows and they all have to run you know stumble back to the boat meanwhile they've left a lot of money and sometimes a little bit of vomit and then they go back it's not the best economy but it's a good economy you know that was just a part-time job for you but yeah part-time i was finishing the high school once i finished the high school i was like uh, i don't have any idea about my future what 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 i like to do for the next year so uh so i decided to move to tijuana with a friends in a small apartment what is it like moving to tijuana as a as a teenager as a late teens guy Ooh. yeah it well, was quite very fun and interesting because it was, it was the first time that I left my parents' house and I had money from my savings from the this job because right. I make good money from the deep, so I had money to... Thank you, cruise exactly, ship. Exactly, uh, exactly. Party girls. Yeah. yeah, I know, I know, I know. Party Thank retirees. <laughs> uh, so you took that money to come and have a good time in Tijuana and live and yeah. be independent. Yeah, yeah, basically to have a uh, to have a good time. That was in the 99, 2000. And that was like uh, the last part of the party years of Tijuana. The legend of Tijuana from the 90s was over. So I get this one or two years having a good parties. I remember the Club A and the Safari, which the Wednesdays was like college nights. And, and they don't allow Mexicans to get in. Just the people wow. from Southern California who came to party like no tomorrow. But they don't allow Mexicans. I was like, oh. but you know, you always know the right people and you somehow managed to yeah yeah we managed obviously we managed and we went several times to these crazy parties and we had really good that's time. a little it's a little fucked up though i mean no i mean obviously the policy is super fucked up but just even even going in and just being like all right we crashed this party but we had to crash it because they didn't actually want us in here but then you know I guess if you're also a teenager and you're thinking, okay, great, well, our chances with these college girls are going to be real good now since the rest of Tijuana is outside the door blockaded, you know, that's the, maybe maybe that's the appeal, I don't know. Yeah, but you're right, the policy sucks. Yeah. There is no way to describe or justify that, the policy yeah. sucks, but but if, if, if we have the big picture and in the biggest period of time, that used, used Tijuana used to be like that because they received a lot of tourists from Southern California mainly. Yeah. And then with the crisis, with the uh, first the 9-11, then the violence crisis in 2006 in Tijuana. Here in Tijuana, yeah. Tijuana yeah. was a quite very, very... Where the cartels were fighting and everybody was just... Yeah. In downtown, in Zona del Rio, yeah. and the first squares of the city. But with these three things, Tijuana lose the tourists. Hmm. So, Club A broke out. Club Safari... No more. Out of the business. No, yeah. no more. Because yeah. they depend... 98% from the tourists of California. Like if they weren't getting a, a mainline injection of like co-eds from La Jolla, they could not stay in business. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. So after 9-11, with the border passed from 30 minutes to cross the border to three hours, 
Jesus. So yeah. the people from over there don't want to come because they say, well, no, fuck, the border is so crazy. And they were right. And even for us, well, like, no, I don't want to cross the border because it's three hours, four hours. Right. Waiting. And th that was like a, the first strike. The second star strike was in 2006 when the Mexican president, former president Felipe Calderón, decide to start la guerra contra el narco, the war against the narco, yeah. and starting in Tijuana and Michoacán. So he sent like a hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of militaries, and they say to, to the cartel of Tijuana mainly, mainly, and that's my perspective. Yeah. I think this president attacked Cartel del Golfo and Cartel de Tijuana and allowed to operate Cartel de Sinaloa. On that time, Cartel yeah. de Sinaloa, the first six years of, well, the first, the, the six years of Felipe Calderón and the next six, six years of Peña Nieto, Cartel de Sinaloa just go up, yeah. up, 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 up. I hear about that a lot and it's like one of those it sounds like a conspiracy theory and yet it also kind of really checks out you know it sounds it sounds and, and, and I'm very clear about it like okay this is my perspective yeah. and it's because I was living here and I yeah. knew the cartel of Tijuana how they worked and how they powerful used to be right so it was a quite a strange in the national context whatever. right in the national context the army comes in yeah it starts you know sort of suppressing some cartels and then mm -hmm. leaving room for another and and the violence here got unmanageable and very surprising and i think tijuana had i imagine they had looked at what is for a while of like wow what is this fucked up and then all of a sudden like it was here in tijuana too mm -hmm. the amount of violence in tijuana was like at some point it was one of the most kind of one of the deadliest cities on earth right yeah what is it like when i mean at this point you had been living here for a few years mm -hmm. uh enjoying you know kind of tijuana as it was what's that feeling like when your city just kind of does a spiral into this alarming violence like what does that feel like well, at that time, uh, I was working in, in a TV station of Tijuana. So in 2003, 2000, between 2003 and 2004, I was uh, quite uh, tired to working on bars, uh, physically tired, because I decided to get to the uni. I was studying psychology, reading a lot, and working on the night. So I was uh, like, damn, I need a regular job. Yeah. <laughs> And one time I saw a cameraman, very old cameraman, and he's still working. <laughs> but in that time was very old. <laughs> so he and must I, be extra I, old now. Yeah, so I saw him in, a, in a covering some story in the uni when I was, and he was carrying this big camera, uh, Betacam. So I saw the logos of this guy and I just uh, make a research to see where is that TV station and curiously was in the way between my apartment to the uni. So it was quite <laughs> close. Even better. Even better. Get so, me a TV station that's on my way to class. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so they sent me to the street. They sent me to the streets and I used to be in my field uh, or on the field and I feel comfortable so that was in 2004 for 2006 
when Felipe Calderón started with the Operativo Tijuana, I was in the, uh, in the cultural section. Okay. Uh, working with a reporter, and I was the editor and the camera, and you, we used to cover concerts, theater, expos, opening expos, etc., etc., all that kind of stuff. But that reporter was a quite a very, very uh, smart girl, and she liked to do like a good reporting. So we make a, a, a good a good team. And we start to do stories related to the, with the violence from the cultural perspective. We were worried, uh, we were thinking about the impact of the music in the kids, for example, in right. that time, the narco corrido and the narco cultura. I'm telling you, those are the, I mean, those kind of stories are the best way to talk about violence, right? I mean, if you're just going straight ahead and just saying like there was, you know, five wounded and one killed, but yeah. it's more about like what's happening to everybody else. Like, can people go out anymore? Like, how, do, how does the culture change? Like, are they doing parties at home now? All of those things I think are, I think that's fascinating. That's, that's where people can also start to identify with what life is like in a, in a conflict zone like that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And we, we, we start to know people from uh, civil organizations who were thinking and worried in, in quite a similar way than us, like uh, trying to doing uh, something else, not just like the obvious response to the violence, which is the, the gangs and the military. And yeah. The police corps, they were going to do a theater workshop. Sorry. Uh, theater workshop, uh, cinema, uh, movies at the park, that kind of thing. So right. we, uh, we start to cover this, uh, the violence, but from this side, because yeah. we were not like uh, the reporters of the general info or the police stuff. Right. This was your this was your territory and you were using that as a lens to talk about the cartel violence yeah and also the idea that like there are big changes it's a big moment in in the history of this city and you get to be a like there on the on the front line of kind of telling some of those stories right exactly exactly the big moment and i and i was there i mean did you feel personal fear for yourself for your friends for Everybody in Tijuana loves a friend, and everybody knows someone inside the criminal structures. And a lot of people have a relative or loved ones in jail. Basically, like the the three arms of connection to the violence, like people would have. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. you're a victim, or you know a victimizer, or. Well, not necessarily. Tijuana was much more complex than that because it's not just a victim. The victim or a the victimizer. Victim. No, no, no. A lot of people who know someone and a lot of people like to know someone because, you know, the narco gives you power, money, status. So, yeah, it was not just that or that. It's a, a lot in between. And a lot of people in between like to be in one of the sides, most of them in the powerful side. Not the right. Victim. But we, as, a lot of people as well, lose uh, family members friends and i i, I lose like quite a friend uh two friends yeah two friends not super close to me like uh, not, not not my best friend or my mate but people that i know like uh, uh, i was thinking he was doing something weird and yeah now that happened yeah and i like to get back a little bit uh, when you say 
Tijuana for the Tijuanenses. On that time, when the city loses the tourists and the people come in in thousands and thousands, the industry of the kitchens or the gastronomy start to do something different. They start to think in the local market because they lose the, 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 the tourists. And they start to create more local concepts and was the restaurants who start this movement and now Tijuana is a quite a very famous city because the food, because the dinners here, because the wine, because the, the craft beer. And I was interested about it like, uh, okay, they are doing something, something and trying to attract new customers. and. Now the Mexicans were were allowed yeah. to get into the bar. <laughs> Finally. Finally. <laughs> It'd be amazing if they just had a super fucking empty restaurant and we're like, still, no, sorry, no Mexicans. I, I don't know when Debbie's going to show up. Debbie hasn't been here in a few years, but you know, we're, we're holding the table for her and her <laughs> and her sorority sisters. Introducing Bluehost Cloud ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. So in that period, you started to notice the restaurants and this was part of like the reporting that you were doing was still in the cultural area. Mm -hmm. How did that evolve after 2006 and seven and eight, uh, your own career? Where did you end up going from there? I keep working for that TV station in that time. I was very attracted, not just for the violence and the city. I was attracted as well for the migrants movement. And I was just always like a reading or hearing what the what happening what was happening with with the mainly the Mexican migrants in yeah. the United States. And I remember in the two thousand six was like uh, the big movement of the Mexican migrants who came out from the shadows and they took the streets in Chicago, in New York, in Atlanta. Uh, big march, big concerts, and they say, we're Mexicans, we're here, we're 11, 12 millions, and we live in the shades, and we want to come out because we we, we need some things, uh, we have some rights. So I was like uh, quite impressed about the power of the movement. I decided to quit my formal job in the uh, TV station here mm. in, in College Synthesis, and I started to be a freelance and why why quit the formal job because i was having a lot of work with this agency mm -hmm. in la and the violence mainly the violence the migrants and they were asking me for a lot of stories and i was i i, I started to receive some inquiries from another journalist another tv station so it's all like a, and <coughs> most of uh, some of these inquiries was for fixing Mm -hmm. And 
I was not able to take these assignments because I was I, uh, working in an office and I have to attend from Monday to Friday. And I was I, I thought I'm losing the opportunity, I'm losing experience to work with someone else from another country who knows, I don't know, more or less, but a different perspective than me. Right. So, so after some years, sometimes, some months, years, I don't know, to think and think and think. So I decided to quit this job and jump to the freelance uh, right. work. And just that sense that, like, the news is so so thick here and, like, it's, the interest is so heavy that you will always find work as a freelancer one way or the other. It takes that confidence, right, to kind of make that leap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I and I feel that now, and I know that now. But at the beginning, it was like a bit afraid to take the decision. I don't know if I'm going to get enough work, yeah. etc., etc., etc. So yeah, uh, I, I do that and start to work more as a freelancer and as a fixer. Uh, some journalists start to come to TGA attracted by the migrants mainly mm-hmm. before the caravans. Before this big movement of the caravans, a lot of journalists used to came to cover some stories related with the violence and the migrants, and it was like a my feels like okay, I know the, I know that field, I know all the shelters of the city, I know the directors of them, I know how to approach to the migrants, and I know dealers, I know traffickers, uh, human traffickers, I know some pimps, I know some prostitutes, yeah. Or, and how 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 did you gain that knowledge? Like, how did you build your ro- Rolodex uh, over the years? Well, over the years in bars and as a reporter, going to the uh, to the neighborhoods. I mean, going up from the office, the governor office, the mayor office. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I never looked for that kind of coverage when I was in the company. Uh, oh, we need someone to go to the uh, city hall. Uh, it was like, don't, don't me, right, don't, right. Don't, don't, not me, not me, not me, please. And I was looking for, to go to, let them send me to a park, to, to the streets, to right. for some stories. So, so I, I start to know people. You knew that your, you know, your depth of knowledge of the pimps of Tijuana would come in handy one day, and you wanted to build that uh, <laughs> that contact list up, I guess. Yeah, I know. Um, no, but it is like it's it's a uh, it, it's completely vital, right? Like you need to know everybody from these because you never quite anticipate the requests that'll come in, and maybe it comes in from a foreign journalist who wants to use you as a fixer. Maybe it comes in from your own journalism of like, you know, here's the story. Like that maybe some maybe there's some violence in the sex worker industry, and you need to know like people who. On, on all sides of that industry, it's like um, that's like classic journalism, right? Is, I mean, that's like 101 to be able to have those connections there. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes I used to drink a beer with them as well. Like, oh, journalists, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, when that kind of, with that kind of people talking seriously about, for example, to me with a drug dealer, yeah. If they open their place to show you and to tell you something and they offer you a beer or a drink, better take it because they are there and they are like a quite vulnerable and they trust on you in, in, in a way. 
and and that helps uh, in in a way but a fun story about the idea that we have in, in our mind one time i was doing a fixing job for an australian company in sinaloa uh, that was related with the traffic of cocaine from that state to la and we went to the place where they have the the cocaine and they're going to finish to grab and put in a car and then to a boat and then to another boat and we were allowed to film that but in the contact point when we meet part of the band was an oxo and we say hey hello was that who oxo you know oxo this corner store this, oh yeah like can, the 7-eleven yeah like like here. like 7-eleven okay so you can see oxo everywhere, everywhere right so a meeting point was was an oxo we say we are journalists blah 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 we meet some of them but not the rest of of, of the guys so was uh sinaloa was hot humid and i say you like to drink a beer yeah sure okay a beer so i i i went inside also and i get uh red beers like uh tecate, tecate yeah tecate but the red one and it turns out they like the blue the light beers yeah really yeah these I, guys who were yeah. moving so much coke yeah and they're like please give me the four comma nine percent not the five comma four percent beer that's amazing what is wrong with those people <laughs> what is wrong with me because i choose the grown beer <laughs> i mean you were choosing you know not to get too gender stereotypical i think you were choosing the manly beer you know, Tecate Red, like uh, Tecate Blue, is is um, it's 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 it's, 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 a, it's a mis it's a Michelob light. It's just not a. It's I'm, not I'm I'm amazed. I'm amazed. What a great story. What did they do? Well, they asked me to change the beer. <laughs> hey, you, no, Blanca, <laughs> de la light, está muy fuerte. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Like when I'm on the job moving tremendous amounts of narcotics, I need to have my wits about me. So I need the less strong beer. That's that's a that is a great story. Uh, and how like, but what is the motivation? I mean, I, I suppose it's different every time. But what is the motivation of a Sinaloa cartel? You know, your average kind of you know drug smugglers to allow you no matter how charming you are you know how they know you like to allow you to film them running drugs well well, well it was a process i mean that ha that don't happen the first day yeah that happened after some days that we share with them we was on the hills and triangulo dorado uh, we have some uh, problems with the car. Like uh, we have to sleep over there on their in their, their houses and yeah. their territory. So they know us. We know them, and we were looking for something like that. But we were we were looking at the beginning. The beginning of this project was just go to the poppy fields, mm. and the poppy field was like at the goal of the job. Okay, but. We had a good contact uh, who knows people in Sinaloa, and this contact introduced us with the family members, 
And they say, okay, we can show you the poppy field. Someone's going to take you. You need to be there, blah, 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 blah. They give us the instructions. And they were very welcoming from the beginning. They cook for us. They offer beer to us, that kind of stuff. Light we, beer or regular beer? Ah, uh, they have both. <laughs> they had both on, on that time. They weren't, they weren't yeah, choosing yeah, sides. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and... At the beginning, I think at the really, really last part of the project, we when we went to the airport to drop someone of the crew who have to head back to I don't know Mexico City. One of the guys told me, uh, "Do you like to fill something else?" And I say, "Well, we have enough poppy fields. We had a good footage from the poppy fields. It was very interesting. It was a quite a lot of adventure to get to the poppy fields and see the process, etc." And he said, "No, no, no. I mean, like something else, something more, more strong." And I say, "Well, yes. What are you talking about? Um, clarify. Uh, we're going to have a charge, man, of the next. I don't know. In the next five days, the next ten days, it's going to be coke." So he was, he's telling you at the airport as you're dropping one of the crew members off that there's something more stronger, that there's a Coke shipment. Yeah, Coke shipment. And he referred to me because I was the only one who speaks speaking Spanish. Uh-huh. And the rest of the crew were from Australia and they just speak in English. But they, they were like a very cool crew. Uh, we camped in the, in the mountains. We had a good experience over there. So this guy like felt comfortable with us. And he told me that. And I said, well, yeah, that sounds, that sounds really interesting. But let me ask to the producer what he think uh, if, we, if we can do that. I call you back. I called you, I called you back uh, with, with an answer. So that day during the dinner, I, I talked with the producer in, in private and I say, I had this info, this guy offered this to us, but your flight is next Friday. I don't know if you are open to move your flight for something that we don't really know if it's going to happen. Sounds like a very good, but I never do that before with these guys. I just meet them. And he said, like, oh, well, sounds, sounds really good. Because the documentary was about it. Right. was related with... wasn't the, just uh, looking since, at poppy since, plants. Yeah, yeah, Sinaloa Cartel, uh, Chapel Trail, and all the stuff. So it looks something like that. Like, uh, even with the Joaquin Guzman Loera in the jail, they're still moving. Right. Big quantity of Even though he's trucks. in there. So when something like that happens, how do you gauge danger? How do you decide that like this is a safe thing to say yes to or to get involved in and this is not? In that case, we think a lot, a lot in that. In another situation, I just react with the, with the situation. Like right, a, because like a, like a gunshot, for example. You, you just there. And you need to react. But in this case, it was a proposal. We need an answer. So there were, there were time to think. And in that time, my wife was pregnant. And I think in that, like, okay, this sounds really interesting. I want to be there. I want to see how that happened. 
I want to be on fierce role to see that. To yeah. be real coke, you know, grab it and put in packs and send it. Right. But we have several discussions about it, about the legality to do that or protection in case of be arrested, what we're going to do. And the producer was very excited about it, but he, he was the oldest of the crew. The rest was me, 36, 37 at the time. Uh, the reporter, 41. The security guy, like 33. The producer had less to live for. Fewer yes. years left. Uh, yeah, in a guy. Be, beware a crazy old dude who's just going to go, <laughs> right, yeah. full metal jacket. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, he okay. was like a full metal jacket. Like, a, let's do it. <laughs> but we, to be honest, we were afraid. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you should definitely be afraid. You'd be crazy not to be afraid, right? I mean, there's so much blood spilled over, over drugs in this country. Uh, and and these guys, I mean, you know, there's, there aren't drugs that drugs don't move without killers too, you know. That's so anyway, yeah. yeah good for yeah, you. For yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we we were we were afraid, and we talk about that during the next breakfast because uh, we uh, we have a uh, time frame between the first proposal to my question to the producer and the producer was very excited about the have to us to Australia they say yes we have our support and we say yes to them we just need to wait the time and they yeah. were they supposed to call us when the right time and during these times we think and we talk a lot about it and I thought in my family, I thought in my future baby, and I thought that I want to meet him, and I want—I don't want to be on jail and receive visits of my kids there, and everything. And he said, the Full Metal Jacket guy, he said, okay, you're free to decide to all of us. You're young, no one have to go. If you want to go, it's okay. If you want to go, there's no problem. You, you, you're free. And at the end, we decide to go because at the end, we thought it's something really interesting to see and something really interesting to tell. And I just asked one, well, I, I asked about my situation because they were, two of them were from Australia, uh, the security guy from America, and I was the only Mexican. I was the only one to stay in the country. Yeah. <laughs> if something happened, if something goes wrong, they could live. Yeah. Their embassy. We'll take them out. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And this guy, the Full Metal Jackal, talked to the production about my situation. And he came back to me and he said, Jorge, you was right. Yes, the company going to protect us. And first term. Because we are employees from them. And if they can, they're going to do something for you. If we were arrested by the federal police or something like that. That's the priorities of the company. I was telling you the truth. Right. And you know how to, uh, what to decide after this. Uh, but they, they, uh, they, they say if, if there is something else that they can do for you, 
in case of something goes wrong. And I say, well, if something goes wrong, well, my wife is Australian. Please take, take her out of this country and my baby to Australia. And he asks, and the company says yes. So they guarantee to me they're going to take out my family out from Mexico to Australia if something goes wrong. That's super fucking grim. I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, I, it, it's nice. I mean, that's that's. I guess that's nice that they all, uh, decided to say yes to that. But, you know, any story that where at the end of it, you're like, perhaps at the end of this uh, shoot, you know, I will be stuck forever in jail and my wife and unborn child will be across the ocean. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But, but that's where your priorities were. You're yeah, just on like, that time, boy, yeah. you, you don't know what's the right decision. Yeah. You don't know. Right. You just think and react and have to be quick. I, I, it is, and I think, I mean, for the backstory, the way that I got connected with you was through reading uh, this piece in the San Diego Union Tribune, right? It was the Gustavo, uh, Gustavo Solis. Solis had written this uh, story about fixers in Tijuana, and and fixers to me are, uh, you know, it's it's not everything that you do, but it's one of the things you do, and it's a fascinating part of the news business that I think is being reconsidered on some levels like people are thinking more deeply about what it is to be a fixer and how international news organizations use and sometimes abuse fixers one of the, you know you would just pointed out kind of one of the one of the fundamental problems with being a fixer and difficulties is that you have to face consequences that the parachute journalist will never have to face mm -hmm. and you know i've 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 experienced that from the other side and it's it's there's no getting around it it's it's a fucking moral challenge like when you come in uh somewhere often a foreign correspondent can be like a bull in a china shop like you just are breaking things you know and then you're leaving the people who were there to help you to to clean this shit up and it's it's a tremendous challenge so how do you like how do you protect yourself or is it like on a case-by-case -case basis? But how do you protect yourself as a Mexican who has to deal with Mexican consequences to the stories that foreigners do here? Well, that's a good question. Is, I, mean, um, I mean, I have a life insurance, a medical insurance. I, uh, I try to protect that side because as a freelance, you, you don't work for a company who pay for that to start. But in a long term, as you say, uh, as a bull in a shiny store who broke everything and then I have to clean up the shit. To this point, I don't had yet a really, really bad experience. I mm. mean, I don't know if, you, if I shoot the, the right journalist. Well, that's got to be a big part of it, right? Is like letting your your instincts tell you, like, oh, this is going to be a bullshit job. Like, yeah. I should not work with these people. These people are okay. Yeah, exactly. And you refer to the to this story with with Gustavo. The I I don't know if he put. I don't remember if he put this this thing, but I talked to him about one fresh journalist who wants to go to a truck tunnel. He just asked me, he, the first contact was, hey, Jorge, I found your name, someone recommended you, blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking to go to do a story about the drug tunnels, drug tunnels. And 
that was the first approach. And I say, well, yeah, sure. Well, thanks for contact me, etc., etc. Yeah, I can help you with that. I have some contacts in the military and the federal police. They can allow us to go inside a tunnel. They can uh, explain us how the tunnel works, etc., etc. So I, I offered that to him, and he said, oh yeah, that sounds good, Jorge. Thank you very much. But I'm looking for a, a an operation tunnel. I asked to him, you mean a working tunnel with crossing drugs and... Yeah, 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 that's what I'm looking for. I said, well, uh, that's uh, quite dangerous, you know that. I mean, you're going to be nine feet <laughs> underground. underground. It's also <laughs> to totally, totally illegal. And Mexico. Uh, right. In Mexico, nine feet underground. In Mexico. Just starting with the safety measures. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not going to be there. <laughs> and I'm not thinking in the police and I'm not thinking in be kidnapped. Well, I'm thinking in that too. I mean, right. you can be kidnapped with these guys. I mean, they are crossing drugs. Right. What are you talking about? So, but your first concern was that this tunnel, will, the dirt will just fall on your head and you'll yeah, all sure. be buried alive. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, it's amazing that you bring that up because I was hoping after this podcast interview, I mean, it's now 10 o'clock at night on Saturday, you know, let's go uh, see a drug tunnel, right? <laughs> and, and, and not a show drug tunnel. I want the real thing. I want the, the drug tunnel where they're moving narcotics right now, nine feet <laughs> underground, under this Otay Mesa. Exactly, to a warehouse on the side of the Otay Airport, Brownfield. Right, right. I, I, wanted, I, wanted, I wanted to pop up right in the middle of Koreatown, uh, Los Angeles. I, no, I mean, there's like this amazing uh, chauvinism of people who will come in and sort of demand the situation to just be set up in, in, you know, in, in a perfect way, right? Probably with less understanding that these are actually like legit crimes that are happening in real time and that people are dying all around these crimes, you know, for various reasons, whether it's like health and safety regulations, <laughs> you know, or just straight up like mob hits. Um, so, so what was your answer to, to this gentleman who requested a, a working tunnel? Well, I, I, I tried to convince him of the, the, side possibilities. I offered different options, but he, he was, focus on that and I and I think I I trying to remember I say to him well I can try to contact who works on that and one of the construction of the tunnels probably if you're interested to interview him and he's still asking about to be in a drug tunnel. I explained to him the danger to be kidnapped by the narcos, to the danger to be arrested by the militaries of the federal police of the U.S. of the U.S. authorities. If yeah. you are on the U. and the U.S. side, so they were too. A lot of things make me think it's too risky. And I say, no, I I, I cannot work with you. Um, there is no way to to work with you. Um, I don't know what's going on with him later. I don't know if he tells the story or... Right. And you, I mean, you also don't know, uh, on some level, it's got to be, I, I don't know what your, you know, your mechanisms for vetting some of these people, because of course, people, even with kind of published journalism resumes, some of them were just fucking loco, you know, to use a, a local term. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> there's just some like loco fucking journalists who don't really 
like don't have a good sense of safety and keeping themselves safe. And maybe they've, you know, maybe they haven't been killed, but they're still like out there just charging. And, and it's not, it's not always the case that, I mean, like you were saying at the very beginning, when you talked about working with foreign journalists, like they may know more than me, they may know less, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's just, you never quite know, um, somehow. Like they just, there's some bad decision making that happens among foreign journalists also. Yeah, sometimes that happened. Another reason to say no for me to a signament was when, when I, uh, when journalists asked me for my, for my right. And I have to say, I have a very flexible right. I mean, if you are independent and you're like me and trying to do something, I want to help you. Yeah. I want to help you. If you are a big company and... I mean, it's not your money, and you have a, a budget to to do that. Or well, I will ask you for a for a fair rate. And in that case, was when the caravan, yeah, and a lot of journalists are, were coming to to Mexico to Tijuana to cover stories. So I was asking like a big amount of job of job in that time. This company asked me for my rate, and I sent my rate. And they say, well, that's our proposal. And it was like a less than the half. And I say, well, it's a bit far. I'm open to negotiate, but it's a big, bit far from my original So proposal. they came back at less they, than they, half they, 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 yeah, 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 they, they came back with, with the less than, a, less than a half. And even in that point, I tried to talk with them. Like, uh, oh, I'm open to a man. It's yeah. an open uh, rate we can manage in a different way. Yeah. But in one point of their com- conversation, they say, we think this is a good rate for Mexico. Mm. <laughs> and I say, okay, that's the end of the conversation. <laughs> that's perfect. That's a perfect response. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you're not going to come to my country to be a racist with me. Right. <laughs> Or to set like some sort of fucking actuarial value on the life of a Mexican versus the life of a Haitian versus the life of a Canadian, you know, like, yeah, like it's risky work. It should be paid accordingly. Yeah, yeah, but they, uh, yeah, but uh, some of the people don't think in that way. The, some of the people think it's ah, oh, it's Mexico. It's a third world country. We can pay shit. Yeah, and they're gonna be okay. They're gonna be happy. You know, I'm thankful with us. Tell me what Tijuana's present day situation is like and how does it compare back to the bad old days of 2006? Well, the present situation is a quite relaxed, calm down. We are on the fierce anniversary of the big caravan movement. So I'm starting to receive some requests about, hey, Jorge, I want to get back to Tijuana because to see what what happened in uh, one year after the, of the caravans, how the things are moving. But it's uh, quite slow. It's not, it's not the same level than, of work than the, uh, the, the, than the last year on this time. And I spend a lot of time here in my place, uh, reading, hearing music. And I keep reporting the daily stories because in the, I'm fixer in one hand and a re- daily right. reporter in another to uh, keep paying the, the bills. I need to keep working and I'm doing stories uh, to some companies in Mexico or LA, etc. But it's okay. It's okay because Tijuana is like that. But, uh, Tijuana have these curves. Yeah. So we're on the bottom now. 
We are on the bottom. Or well, maybe we're scaling. We're scaling, scaling, and something big is going to happen no more than six months. Yeah, you'll, you'll never worry about the long-term newsworthiness mm, of, no, of Tijuana. No, Tijuana, Tijuana is like uh, the jewel of the crown. This is this magnificent, mystic border city. Something really weird is happening always. It's, it's all in the natural life cycle of Tijuana. Yeah. That's great. I think we finished uh, the entire bottle of mezcal. Yeah. Thank that's, you. That was impressive. No, thank you. It was, yeah. it was your mezcal. I, I... No, well, it's better if you share it. <laughs> that's, that's true. Thank you, Jorge. No, feel welcome. Feel welcome anytime. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Alexa Van Sickle is our producer. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Audio mastering help by Ricardo Gutierrez, who, when he's not trying to salvage our Tijuana dog sounds, masters some of the best musical artists out there. Check him out on Instagram at Ricardo Masters. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. An update on Jorge's life in the time of COVID. He managed to get out to Australia before lockdown started and has been living in Queensland with his wife and son. And he's got a new job, one that is presumably much safer than his old one. And for that, I am grateful. Next week, back in the Hotel Tijuana in Tijuana with the late Hera Gámez who worked with Alotro Lalo, one of the truly brave legal activist groups on the border. Hera was a deportee himself, a survivor of gang violence, and he had the best aw-shuck smile on either side of the line. Sadly, and sort of unbelievably, he died last year, some months after we recorded the episode. I am at least glad that our conversation, a very real and very raw one, survives. We will meet you there.